In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an amazing guest here with me, and her name is also Pam. Hey, Pam, how are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. I've heard snippets of your story, and I'm so pumped to hear all about it today and your journey, and I'm just inspired by you, so I'm very excited to have you here today, so thank you. Oh, my pleasure. So you've done a lot to date and you still are just an absolute rock star in your world and continuing to just elevate. Now, what inspired your journey to date? We'll start off with a very broad opening question, if you will. What inspired it? I suppose I've often talked about my life in hindsight as if it was a series of accidents. And I don't like to think of it that way because you don't just trip into, you know, your master's in positive psychology or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that what happens to inspire some of that is sometimes what's always in you. And I've always had an openness and I've always had a curiosity. And so when I was given opportunities, I didn't say no. So I suppose if you ask me what inspired me to go live this crazy, awesome, wonderful, sometimes struggly always great life is probably asking why not instead of why. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Amen. So, I mean, you've got psychology, you've got so many amazing things that you're working on. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? That's always the best question. (laughs) Well, I do remember telling my dad that I wanted to be a flight attendant on a rocket to the moon. Wow. I don't recall if that was something I thought I would study or what, but, uh, you know, beyond everything else, I probably wanted to be, you know, pretty much everything. I went to high school and college in the eighties when it was the bonfire of the vanities and everybody had shoulder pads and we were trying to be (laughs) rich and, you know, and, uh, jobs people took at that time, or I guess a lot of the studies we were doing in undergrad, were finance and, you know, big, you know, you could be a doctor, you could be anything. And and women were told we could do anything. We could have it all. Right. And so I followed in the footsteps of my father and my father's family. And I was a fourth generation banker. Mm -hmm. And I, I went into accounting and finance as my undergraduate degrees, but again, saying why not and ending up in Russia where there was a project going on to after the wall came down to, to sort of come in to, I don't know, do everything from joint ventures with the oil and gas companies and that sort of thing. I went over there as an accounting finance person to work in that field. And there are no Joneses to keep up with over there. So there was no sort of preconceived notion of what my career was going to be step by step. So 
I ended up just sort of thinking, wow, well, okay, I'll try this. Why not that? Why not that? And I ended up really appreciating more of the psychology of the change management of the people side of business. And it was a big change for me because I, you know, I wasn't sitting in America with all my friends that were, you know, continuing down that path and buying their little house to become a bigger house and a car and a this or that. I was in Siberia. And so, you know, it was a, a very interesting place to craft your own career. And when I tried these new things around change management and more of the people practices, I never lost the business side. You, know, you can't unlearn what you've got. So I was very conscious of that link between people and performance. And so I just probably bounced around a lot and tried a billion things until you know, I started down the track of what I, what ended up being my research and, and is now my practice. But, but it was a really interesting thing. In undergrad, I thought I was going to be a banker and I wasn't necessarily bad at it. It just turned into something I don't know that I chose for all the right reasons. I don't think I knew enough about what else there was. And, you know, we could have it all. I had shoulder pads and everything. So I was going to go for it. So I tried it a bit more than just the finance side of things. I love that so much. And you mentioned a lot of things just now that I thought were really important. So like you had your accounting and your finance degrees, and then all of a sudden you were offered an opportunity to go to Siberia when this was during the collapse of this Soviet Union. Just after. Yeah. That is extremely brave. First off, you know, and so what was that job opportunity? Like what made you say yes? Like that to me, I'd be like, they just went over communism. I don't think so. You're perfectly fine in the United States, just hanging out, you know, like what made you say yes? And what was that sort of job description that just interested to know what that was like? <laughs> That's so funny. Now you're asking me to think back away. It was in my <laughs> 20s. And so it was, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I, it was interesting because I believe they did the right thing in asking us to go for six weeks or eight weeks or some, some smaller amount of time that any 20-something-year-old person would be like, sure, why not? Nobody's ever been there. I, I remember my grandmother saying, you're going to Russia. You know, it was right after the Cold War. It didn't equate like that to me. I was curious. I was excited. I went over there and course they do compensate you for the hardship location so I'm a little bit you know there was a little of that too but when you get over to something if you're open to something like that and you go for six or eight weeks which obviously ended up being three months and then six months and it kept you know growing and I kept saying yes or why not or whatever it was it was just an amazing opportunity really smart people really adventurous people really fun people just it's almost like if you could hand pick not that everyone i knew in the states wasn't all you know there were lots of wonderful people in the states but if you could hand pick this crazy group of people that was just fun to be with for this period of your life it was it was pretty amazing time so I probably wouldn't have gone if somebody said, do you want to go for six years, eight years? Because I ended up, you know, being, a, it was my primary residence for six, eight years, if not more, I have to do the math on that. But it was primarily my residence. And then I moved to London as well as China. But the idea that I went over there and, you know, 
lived in Siberia in the middle of winter when it was, gosh, 90 degrees below zero is a crazy thing to imagine. Even taking a dog sled at one point to, to get to where I needed to go. So it was, it was just this series of adventures that like sort of went slowly into it. You just got caught up into it and all of a sudden you had the bug, right? And it's probably why I've stayed gone because I I liked the adventure of finding these new places and frontiers and doing what it was that was necessary to help people in business. And it was fabulous. It was, uh, again, when I say accident, I don't know that I would have chosen that path. I was not an expat kind of person. You know, I'm not the one, uh, if you would have put us all in a row and said, which one will be the expat, it wouldn't have been me. And then all of a sudden I thought, you know, hey, this is not so bad. I can really, you know, I'm really enjoying this. And it's something that was worth every hardship because the lessons I learned about myself and what now is a part of my research and my practice to, you know, help people craft their job. I'm going to use that word and it's not the word, you know, I I want everyone to find their calling. And I think what happened to me with no Joneses to keep up with, a lot of times I speak to young women and girls and, you know, kids, boys as well that, and they'll ask me about my career and I can't tell them about employee engagement and things that I research because it doesn't make sense to them. So I just said, you know, you might've heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. Well, what if you were the Joneses? You know, what if you were the one that that you made the decisions and, and maybe somebody wants to keep up with you. It's not the reason you do it, but it's like, what if you were the one that paved the way? And I got to experience that. So the authenticity of my career was amazing. The fun was amazing. It was a slow drip into it. And I just kept lapping it up until I got to the moment where I thought, oh, I got to make a decision about where I'm going to live. And eventually came back to the States to base myself here most recently. But what an opportunity that had I said had I said no to it in the very beginning, I just don't know where my life would be. I'm sure it'd be great, but you know, it's just, wow. It's like, sometimes it can feel like coming back from war, like nobody will understand Siberia, you know, Uh, at the same time, it's not a bad thing. Like, like, you know, going to battle might be, it was just such an amazing opportunity full of so much that now I'm trying to make sense of it in the gift that I give the world, because I'd love for people not to go through all of that, you know, because that took a lot of years in my life to do things. And my life is different for that, you know, all kinds of reasons. I don't have children, for example, and I always thought I might, but everything that I've eventually come to has been just great and crafted by me. And even in the bad moments, still better than had I not crafted it myself. And I want that for everybody. So that's become my practice in helping the diverse population of people, whether they look differently or think differently, or they're from a different place to understand how they can craft their world, their career, their calling, their job into something that feels their own in good and bad. You know, so that when they're sitting with the coffee right here and they're looking back at all of the bad and the good, it still feels good. You know, it still feels like it was worth it. And that's what my practice is now. So I'm kind of lucky to be living, you know, what I do. 
That's amazing. And you mentioned something, a term, because I'm not sure if all listeners will understand what it means, but expat, can you elaborate what that means? I know. And it sounds like an awful thing because it's got an X in it, like you're <laughs> somebody, but it's uh, but an expat is, an, is a term. Expatriate means that you're living outside of the country that you vote in or that you are a citizen of. I'm sure there are people that are dual citizens, but you live outside of the country you're from. And it's interesting, at, the, at one point in time when I was going into some, some research around expats in the world, expatriates is what they're called, it's more of a tax status, I guess, in some senses, but it's a term that gets thrown around. It's interesting, there were 168 million people living outside the country in which they vote. And I thought that was interesting because if you think about it, I have always been, when I first went overseas, people would say, how cool you're on this great adventure. And maybe six or eight years later, they'd say, well, so are you close with your family? Like, where, what are you running away from? You know, like, when are you going home? And after 10 years, they don't know what to ask anymore. And so they'll say, well, so are you not patriotic at all or whatever? And it's really interesting because you almost have to be more, not have to be, you become potentially more patriotic, not than another person, but then yourself. What, you, what you've chosen about the country that you love, which is where I'm from, America, okay. I've chosen my patriotism. I've okay. seen other places. I've lived in post-communism and socialist societies. I've lived where things were different. And when I say I love America, I really mean that I've chosen it. And so expatriates have a really interesting take on the election in their country or the healthcare system or anything. It's, it's a very worldly view that I am finding is just exceptional. I'm finding I can't live without it now. You know, I have a global view of, of the world. It feels like the world is my home. I'm struggling now in America, even though I love it here, I'm struggling to figure out what it is to be a part of my country and still be other. You know, how do I continue to be that other thinker? Uh, I don't want to conform completely into the ways we do things. And so it's it's been an interesting thing. But being an expat is something I highly recommend if you have a chance to do it. That's amazing. You went into a post-communist era and then also went into a socialist environment too. Like, what was that experience like? Because technically you were an outsider. I hadn't thought about it in that term, but I think what happens when you're, when you go into, well, I, I can't say that China and Russia are the same, even though they're both post-communist, they have the, the rabbit hole to go down, but there's a lot of differences in the way that they've accepted the sort of post-communist or the way in which they're moving out of it. And in Russia in particular, it was interesting because at the time it was a very chauvinistic society. You know, it was a very um, male dominated, even though women were in the workplace. And so it's funny, it's very interesting to be a female expatriate, expat. The chauvinistic society that I was entering into at the time had a chivalrous kind of underbelly because I wasn't Russian. I would go in and they'd say, you know, I was the only one of the few girls in a lot of the situations where there were banker boys and men who, you know, went in. The older men inside some of these institutions in the oil companies or in the banks in Siberia, you know, they would sort of pat me on the head. And in some cases you would think, oh, well, that's a terrible thing. Don't let, you know, people treat a woman that way or whatever. But I thought, actually, that's one of my biggest, that I could use that really in a, in a good way because 
I could have conversations with them because they weren't going to yell at me. They weren't going to be, you know, overly, they were going to, in their own way, care for me because, you know, I wasn't a Russian woman and that was a different scenario for me anyway. And in China, I feel the same way because I don't look Chinese. And so a lot of times the credibility I get is because of the, the idea that they're curious of the West or uh, not necessarily in Beijing or Shanghai where they are quite familiar with it, but depending upon where you go, they wanna know from you. So it's a very interesting thing because the post-communist regimes that had the chauvinism or the oppression or the you know veil that, that was between the people and the outside world, just maneuvering that as an American, I would say being an American has been the best and the worst thing that has happened to me in a lot of those situations. It's, it can make it scarier, but it can also be a real plus that they're so curious. So, you know, being in essence a minority, but I was not an oppressed minority. It was, it was, they were curious about what went on with me. I became, I don't know, I understood that environment, which is what I'm having trouble with in America, you know, where I'm here and I'm thinking, oh, I'm supposed to be just like you. And, and how do you do that? And why did we wear this? And what, what did you, what do we do in the grocery store when you want to go down that aisle? I don't know what you buy there. <laughs> so it's been interesting because the there wasn't a lot of the foods that I was used to or the shampoo I used or any of that. The chauvinism or the curiosity or the or the lack of a law or the lack of safety or the all of those things you began to carve out as sort of a different way of living. So you could be safe and you could be, and then you come back here and you think, oh, I got to unlearn that again. It's very interesting because it's so different than some of the Western places. A lot of people will travel to Rome or Paris or London, beautiful places, but you're not going to have that same separation of who you need to be there and who you need to be here. So now I come here and I hear on Facebook, people just touting the word, you know, so-and-so is a communist or a socialist, or we're all turning socialist or whatever. And I'm thinking, you really don't know those words. There's a real sense of what that means that couldn't possibly be in that scenario you're describing or in the ways in which our laws are here in the States, or, you know, it's, it's something that I've been privileged to see. It's very different and not at all simple. You know, when you sit here and think, oh, communism is all just collective mentality it's there's so much more to this than that and while I, it allowed me to know what I loved about my own country it also pushed me to some of my own boundaries you know I, I had to get out of bribery scams and you know be arrested for things I didn't do and and you know I'm sort of not sure who the audience is so I won't go too yeah. far into it, but there's some very interesting and unsafe things that that when people say, I wonder what I'll be like if I'm ever in one of those situations. Well, you know, you get, you, you are held hostage and you know that how you'll be. And I can say, I know how I'll be when I'm held hostage because I've been held hostage, but not at all in the same way that you would have been held hostage in the States, you know? So it's a, wow. it's a, a different way of being and you, you test yourself and you see some things that probably no one else will be able, you know, I don't know how many Americans have, have been in both Russia and China. And, you know, th there are probably plenty of them, but I, I just don't know that that's a, a regular occurrence that you'll see that. And so I need to remember that that's inside me and the gift that I'm giving. 
and that some of the turmoils that I felt in that post-communist society, some of the, the things I lacked that I didn't need, I understood want and need differently, and some of the ways in which I found some strengths in me that I would have never tested here in the States. So it has a really high, high level and a really low, low level, but it's a crazy adventure if you ever get a chance to, to, to do that. And what's crazy to me is like, you've been through those experiences and you still stayed. Yeah. You know, I guess fool me once. No, I guess you get held hostage once you figure you can do it. No, I'm, I'm really <laughs> joking. I'm really, really joking. Um, I think what ends up happening is in hindsight, you tell the stories, maybe more of them at a time. And it feels like a lot, whereas they, things that happen, happen once and then twice. And then, and all of a sudden it sneaks up on you and you've changed your perception. Something as simple as in the early days in Russia, uh, you would never want to sit at a table by the window at a restaurant. If, if you found a restaurant, by the way, that was not, that was another thing. There might not have been a restaurant. You would never want to sit by the window because you didn't know if if there was a contract hit or something on the person, you know, someone inside the restaurant, you didn't want to be in the crossfire. Depend there were certain restaurants uh, frequented by oil and gas or bankers. You'd rather sit by the kitchen, which is totally opposite here. So you kind of get yourself in a situation yeah. where they want to sit you by the window and you think, oh, okay, breathe. Okay, we're going to be fine. And it's such a simple thing. And that was so long ago, but it, it's an example of, you know, a few of the right and wrong kind of mental mindsets that you have to connect in one culture to where it would be completely the opposite in the other. So you have to, you have to remember where you are, I guess. Yeah, and that's crazy. So like I, I mentioned to you, I was born during the collapse of the communist era, but there was still so much happening. And I remember being like four years old, going up to the window in Albania. And, and because after dark, you know, when it gets dark out, you're nobody's supposed to be in the windows. Nobody's supposed to be out on the street because there's military tanks out. Right. And they're just waiting anybody who's out and disobeys like, and this was after the collapse of communism. Sure. Unquote, sure. Right. And I remember running up to the window and I'll never forget this. And I was a young kid and I still remember it to this day. Like my grandmother, I go up to the window and I open up the blinds and there's a military tank. And I saw a guy like look up at me and my grandmother like grabs my shirt from the back and like, what are you doing? Like, she's like screaming and crying and like, she's throwing me back. And she's like, she's like, Pam, never, ever, ever, ever do that again. Like if they see you, they don't care who it is. They'll shoot. I was like, what? <laughs> like, and to this day, I like, remember that, you know, like, and I'm just like, whoa, you know, so I, I can only imagine what it was like for you, I just remember that experience and I'm just like, and that was post-communism, quote unquote. Oh, absolutely. Well, and you know, there were times when I had a bodyguard and, you know, I think again, you, you take one step and this happens, you take another step and that happens, but I always felt like I could get out if I needed to. Yeah. I always felt like I could, there were times when I wondered, you know, like if, if I had a visa problem or a, the whole jail thing was an interesting dilemma. That's that's another story. But the idea that for the most part, I felt like I could get out of there if I ever wanted to. But one of the things that your story makes me think of is that I then met, I'm over there in my 20s and I'm meeting all these people that are working with me, for me, around me, and they're Russian. 
and we're becoming great friends and they're teaching me language that, you know, I didn't study Russian. So whatever I picked up, I picked up from them. Wow. And I enjoyed their company. And then to realize out over sharing stories that when I was such and such age, they would have just done anything to find toilet paper. And I was at the groceries. I thought if I'd known, I could have mailed you some. I, like, how could we both be on the planet in that moment when the Cold War was going on and they were acting like this and needing that. And I was acting like this and had plenty of this. And I, it just didn't resonate to me how that could be. And it was, it was an amazing um, revelation to just understand that uh, America was not all there was, you know, that, that the whole world was, was in different places of learning and, and, mm. and, you know, wanting and needing and everything. And uh, it, it really changed me. But in terms of the, the safety, I remember when we first arrived, there were some classes we could take for situational awareness. And they taught us when, how to, we had to hitchhike to get around when there were no taxis in the very beginning, you could take the Metro, but you know, you would in essence hitchhike to get to work or the restaurant or whatever. And we would be in danger at some point, they thought, you know, they, if you don't get in this car, you get in that, you do this. And they taught us how to jump out of a moving vehicle. And it was funny because I don't remember thinking anything horrific about it, you know, like, oh my gosh, this is happening. But it was a friend who was a Marine who taught us how to be situationally aware. And, you know, when the car turned down the alley, we were supposed to fall out on this part of our arm and roll. I just thought, okay, well, it dawned on me, we practiced one time and then we needed to do it one time and your body doesn't know you're practicing. You know, you're, you remember the rape crisis where you put your keys in between your fingers and you hit behind you? Well, if your mind doesn't know you're pretending, you're actually ready for that. I was amazed. And I, and I wasn't in your situation where I didn't understand, like you, you were a child not knowing why your grandmother was pulling you away. But what an interesting thing to, to sort of go, huh, well, okay, you can teach me how to jump out of a moving, well, sounds all, sounds all James Bondy, but you know, fall <laughs> out of a moving vehicle that's slowly turning the corner. And I thought, well, okay, but I'll never have to use that. And then I did, but it was okay. Like, not okay. I, I don't, I'm not trying to make light of anything because if I really go down into the story, I could, you know, come up with some crazy things that might bring back some bad memories, but all in all, I was more safe than not. I knew what to do more often than not. And it ended up working out. And so the funny parts to the story, the dinner party story level of it all yeah. is great. But I really do think when you think about what your grandmother did, like you have to know what's right and wrong and quick and urgent and how to do it. And your brain probably didn't go, you didn't go to the window very often anymore after that, I bet you. Like you learn it quick and you, and your life is in danger if you don't keep that. I'd never been in that situation before. Mm -hmm. So crazy to go over there and put myself in that situation, you know, like, strangely not knowing it right and then with all these different experiences like what kept you sort of positive about the experience because I'm not sure that like if it was me I'd be like hi mom I'm leaving <laughs> I'm getting on the next flight peace out you know no, I, I, pr I probably would but like you know when you think about it you're just like how the heck like 
And my mother can tell you the many times I called, most of the time when I called my mother, I was sick. I don't feel good, mom. You know, I've got some Russian flu or something. But I will tell you, I've only told the bad stuff really to, if you think about it, because think about what was happening. The, Russia was becoming way up for a while. And then about August of 98, the ruble crisis finally hit after the, the global financial crisis. So we had really high, we got the banks opened. We had, you know, the, some of the banking practices figured out a little bit. I mean, not, I'm not saying, you know, just me, the whole expat world kind of helped Russia become a little bit more, more capitalistic. I think there's elements of the behavior, the criminal capitalism that, that others may say it became, but, but I think what, what we were seeing was just incredible change. And when I talk about the people that were over there, I mean, we would sit around and say, you want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Let's go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And we would get on a plane and go, I mean, it was just like being Midas. And I don't just mean that from a monetary perspective, but I felt like the world was our oyster because once you get that bug, it's like, well, you know, uh, Hong Kong is being handed back to Britain. Let's go there. Okay. And it just became this, it's like all the boundaries, all the, all the borders of every country fell away because we could travel. We could, you know, they gave us travel allowances back then. We had, we had expat packages. We were paid to, in hardship locations in the beginning. And and then what happens is your career begins to really go crazy. Moving to London to work with the group that was working in the learning and education, directing a lot of the post-merger of Pricewaterhouse and Coopers, I was afforded these amazing opportunities to work with really big companies with global teams and I was in fact global just by virtue of having, you know, gotten on that plane that first time. So therefore you kind of, the good was as good as the bad was bad. If you know, like, In other words, such an amazing place of magic and self-learning and opportunity. And, you know, my friends were all over the world. So, you know, we would, I don't, I would never have thought of it as just unsafe or scary or you know anything like that those pieces of it were a part of that just major change mm-hmm. from mcdonald's the, the big mcdonald's that went in right in you know near red square to you know the the oil and gas companies that were coming over there then now and and the people that were there were times when stories of where we just had been were splashed all over newsweek and so it was a pretty heady experience with a lot of amazing people. And so I was privileged to be a part of it. It's like being with someone who plays tennis better than you, you're going to be better at it. So I kind of like went around behind everybody and thought, just, I just want to hang out with you a little bit more, a little bit you know, longer and have more time to be even more adventurous and even more successful and even more whatever. And it couldn't imagine coming back to the States after a little while. It sounds like a blast. And then your transition from sort of the accounting and finance world into psychology. What was that? Was the aha moment for you that made you shift into the psychology world? Yeah, I, there were probably a couple of moments actually, because when I, when I moved to London, I was working more regularly, right? Meaning, you know, in an office that had people that some of whom hadn't traveled, you know, it was like, it was like a, they were local to the, to the London office and, and it became, it was like a Western experience all of a sudden. Gotcha. And, um, 
And it was the first time I'd ever thought about what my career was going to be next, because otherwise it had been like, I want to do that. And I want to do that. Now, you know, now it's like, oh, well, I got to, I guess I got to figure out a plan. And I started realizing that all this that I'd done in the learning and the training and the people practices that had been part of my being, I don't, I don't, I'm not diminishing this in any way, but part of me being the girl on the team, you know, those communication practices and things that I was honing in were really pieces of psychology. I didn't know it. I didn't think that it was just a consulting gig, if you will, kind of a change management project, which is sort of a piece of psychology as well as, as operations. And so I started recognizing that I sat at this intersection of business and behaviors. And that was just relative to what I had been allowed to learn. You know, when I, when I say allowed to learn, a lot of the companies would take on the the development, you know, they'd pay for your development. If I said, I need to know a little bit more about change management, I learned it. A little bit more about how to train or, or bring uh, skills development to the, the new hires at this bank. They helped me learn all that. So I was finding my way over into the people side of business, but I wasn't actually, that's not anything that I had studied. I was just an empathetic person who liked that kind of stuff. And I could, you know, I had patience or whatever it was that was necessary. And so when I started thinking about what I was going to study, I had studied all kinds of corporate behavioral stuff, but I realized that there was a component of business that everybody seemed to believe they understood. And it was something that they called employee engagement. And I thought about it because employee engagement seemed like they all meant the word happiness. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay. I want to be happy, you know, at work and and I thought, well, that sounds like a good thing. But then when I started looking at, because remember, I couldn't turn off the business side. I started looking at engagement surveys and they would say things like, do you have a best friend at work? Which I totally get. If I have a best friend at work, I'm probably going to love it there. But what if I don't? Are you going to get me one? Like I, like, I didn't really understand how, like, I got it. I got it that people should be happy, but I didn't really understand how they could be happy at work. You know, like if they weren't, what, what then? Right. So I thought, well, I got to figure this out because as again, with the whole accident thing that I keep saying, I don't want to use the word accident. I was doing a keynote speech to some people in the private equity world in London. And I said something, they asked me about employee engagement. And I said, well, to be truthful, if you have to survey me, I'm not engaged. And that phrase kind of became a Ted talk that I gave. It was like a, something I I had to think back to, well, why did I say that? You know, like, and I sort of, it was a joke, but if you have to survey me, you don't know me. You're not, you're, and you want me to say that I'm engaged. Like, you're going to find out I'm not engaged. So why survey me? Like, I was sort of kidding. <laughs> but when I started realizing that actually people were kind of following me after that and saying, what, what do you mean by that? And what do we do about that? I didn't have an answer. So I knew that we had, I knew that we couldn't do without business. And if we increase people's happiness or engagement, we didn't necessarily increase their business. But if we increase the business, we didn't necessarily increase their happiness. And they would put a ping pong table in the lobby or something. I'm like, okay, but that's not helping the business. You know, like which it's like this seesaw. So I decided that I wanted to learn more about employee engagement, but how it actually could also increase performance, how they could be linked so that you didn't just increase somebody's happiness by playing ping pong and then fire them because they weren't productive enough. You know, like where was the middle bit? 
And so I went to the University of Pennsylvania and after meeting a couple of the professors beforehand, I decided that if I could study positive psychology, which is the pursuit of well-being, happiness, flourishing, that I could understand what it was. And I went to school to, to learn that, had not a clue that I was going to be on this just amazing journey personally, because what is the pursuit of well-being if you're not thinking of it for yourself first? It was an amazing opportunity. And what I ended up realizing is that engagement at work is what we had been measuring. But engagement in your work meant that we needed to know something about our authentic, our go-to tendencies. What is it? How do I work? And if I could explain how I work in an unbiased way, it doesn't matter what I look like, then I can come in and be me and you can be you. And so then of course it went to the diversity and inclusion area because if I could nail this, this if I could nail this idea of how to get everybody to flourish as themselves in increasing work, then I needed to measure their performance mindsets and help them understand how to work closer to their natural strength set. Mm -hmm. And when I did that and they looked differently, they could actually come together because they needed each other and then go, oh my gosh, I did not know you were gay or I did not know you. Oh, well, you have a black father and a white mother. I didn't know that. All that pain and all the all those stories of pain and identity and all those things that are very relevant in bonding with another human being are incredibly necessary. But wouldn't it be great if that was after we'd already bonded over the things that we needed to do together? So I became really interested in the idea, going down that path of studying employee engagement and realizing that if you're engaged in your work as you, then there was an element to get that inclusive diversity. And it allowed us to lead beyond our biases because we could come together over something rather than tolerating everybody's differences or trying to heal a lot of pain that is very definitely worthy of healing, but may not be in the control of either the organization or the timing that we have. And so without diminishing that, how could we come together over something that we needed to do? So getting along better, but also getting to work better. And it, it culminated into that idea that all those studies of me trying to figure out what that intersection of business and behaviors were, would be for engagement really just unlocked the idea of what it was to have a fair and equitable, sort of a just society inside of the organization. And it's not the be all end all, but it's the foundation. If you don't have this, it's impossible to get the rest. And I can say that impossible. It's not a, that's usually not a word always and never or usually words we don't want to use, but it would be impossible to sustain inclusivity because it cannot be one of each of everybody. That's an impossibility. So if you want to get everyone organized around their diverse characteristics and mindsets, we need to have a way to sustain that. And the only thing we have in common inside of our organization is the work we do. And so nobody was measuring that correctly. And I took myself from the place of the engagement surveys and I put myself right square in the middle and I said, you do your work, you're doing great stuff about 
trying to find an anti-racist society because I certainly don't have the background for that. But if you want the anti-racist society and your or the community within that organization and that culture, then I'll help you do it without losing the rat race. And it was just this funny, you know, anti-racist, don't lose the rat race. It became this series of, of little taglines that I could do to make it more accessible. But, but it's really just a piece. It's a very simple piece that kind of seals a crack in the basement yeah. so that all the beautiful decorations can be done on the floors above. But we've got to come together over something, something where we can actually bring our differences in around a shared unified solution and then bring the rest of it on top. So I was beyond gobsmacked when I got to that in my studies because that became my gift that I gave the world or am giving the world, I suppose. And now I'm putting it digitally. So it's, I don't want to use the word accident, but wow, who knew that was coming? It's amazing. And you found your niche with it, which I think is so cool. Everyone always says the niches are, the riches are in the niches. And that's, that's a great you one. But you know, what's so cool is like, you know, you were able to find that and you were able to say, okay, here's the problem. How do we make the solution? And now you've got your own firm. Yeah, I did. Right? You're doing your thing. And so what was that transition like to opening your own firm? Because you had been corporate for a long time. And I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening and a lot of female entrepreneurs, especially. So how was that transition for you? Well, it was, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. When I, I was working at the time with Price Waterhouse and Coopers as they merged. So the, the last sort of corporate gig I, I had would have been PwC, loved it, had had. I still have amazing friends from there. I had to go about that in a couple of different ways. One is that I had to have a visa to live where I lived and work where I worked. And so it was sort of simpler if I held my own visa after I decided to leave because I was doing some things. In, in essence, I left PwC and actually contracted back in. So that's one way, get you know, come out of the corporate world, but have them need you to come back in because I did... I did come back and do some training and field development for them there and have worked with them over the years in different countries. But I think what happens is, and again, I would have been an unlikely entrepreneur. What happens is there's safe. Entrepreneurs are not all Bill Gates who goes away into a cave and founds Microsoft, you know, in his pajamas or whatever he did. I'm making all that up, by the way. But, you know, I'm just giving that movie kind of entrepreneur and I yeah. chose Bill Gates' name. So apologies to him. But the idea that what's happening is it's not just those people that can't, uh, so it almost has an anti-social, big going for the gold ring kind of a drive. But I think there's different kinds of entrepreneurs. And so when I left the corporate world and held my own visa, I was lucky that I had some continuing revenue that allowed me to keep going. So I didn't have to go get funded. I didn't have to go to all those things. And again, I remember, you know, my banking background, I understand all of that, but I didn't need it at the time. So what I tell people now, and I help a lot of have taught entrepreneurship and I work with female entrepreneurs all the time is that the business is you. And so the same mindset diversity I was talking about in the corporate world, I want them to understand the business they run. It's like a language. It's your business is going to be you and you're going to need this other person that might be your opposite, whether they look like your opposite or not, but here's how to talk to them. So I can start someone that might not be the kind of risk taker, fast paced, antisocial person that can sometimes 
seem like the perfect kind of entrepreneur and I can show them how they run their company. And it's been really helpful because it helps women get out of this imposter syndrome. Again, using my own world and my own life because I wasn't an entrepreneur type, if you will. Then I can help them find the business they run. I do help men as well, but a lot of times it's the women that want to really understand the imposter syndrome. We come out of it differently than men. And when I work with women, it's, it's really an amazing place to be to help them understand that they don't have to run business like a man or like that book says they run business like they are. And that becomes the, again, inclusive diversity can start with one person. The next person I need needs to be diverse, even if they look just like me. And the next person I need needs to be a little bit more. So you need to know how you work how they work, and then you learn more about them. So it's the exact same thing, only backwards, you know, because you don't have HR, you just have you. And I build the business up without losing that authenticity from that person. So it was a slight accident again that I ended up holding my own visa, but what a wonderful opportunity to find out what it is to be an entrepreneur when you really weren't the kind to be an entrepreneur. So I can prove that there's a lot of different, there's at least, I sort of categorize them into three to five different categories of entrepreneurs. And uh, it just makes people feel better about what they are doing. And, and hopefully it means they can keep their business longer and you know, sustain that level of income because they're doing it the way that they feel most authentic. You know, Right. Oh, I love that. You're such a rock star. And this is the question that I always gets everyone, but I always love it. It's my favorite. Knowing what you know now, what would be the biggest piece of advice that your older self would give your younger self? I would say to realize that you already have what you need. You just need to know when to use it and when to strengthen it and what it needs around you, what you need around you to help you be who you need to be. Because I think I spent a lot of time trying to find, I don't want to say find myself, but, you know, become something. And I was already, I think we grow up to be who we always were. And I believe that my creativity and my openness when I was younger, I would say something to these banker men who were gray haired, older than me. And I'd say, but what about blah, blah, blah. And they would just look at me and go, no. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just stupid, but you know, maybe I really shouldn't be talking. And, and what I realize now is that I just hadn't grown into my creativity. You know, my, I, I was right in asking the question, even if it was a wrong, you know, like you have to, you know, the old adage, there is no dumb question. Well, I probably asked a lot of them and thought I was not as smart, you know, in those moments. And I think I, what I would love to do next is to help younger people understand their go-to tendencies. I want them to know that when it doesn't serve you well, it doesn't mean it's not serving you well in another moment. Because that creativity that I used right then, I would have said to my younger self, you're okay. It just wasn't the moment for that strength. You know, you'll use it again and it's going to be great. Because I think I stifled myself a little bit after that, you know, until, until later. Then I let it go. You're amazing. You're amazing. So, so now what's, what's coming up next for you? What, what's, what's going on in 2021? What's, what are the new updates in your world? Well, this is the most excited I've been in a long time about a next step with work. There's so little worry around this next step because it feels 
Absolutely right. Um, like everybody, COVID came and the pandemic sat us all at home and I wasn't traveling, you know, living so many, you know, places and working in so many continents. Um, I was homebound like everybody else. And I started realizing that I had to put my stuff online. You know, I had to do what I do and I needed to do it more digitally, the workshops, the coaching, whatever it was I needed to do. So I looked at what mindset diversity was and I looked at the research about that organizational justice. And lo and behold, as I looked at my notes, I had crossed out the word organizational justice and called it inclusive diversity because that's what HR would, would want. Mm -hmm. But I'm seeing all these people in the streets protesting for injust, you know, the injustice that they feel for their lives mattering and, and just huge, just incredible activism. And I think they want, they've always wanted that, that engagement, that inclusion in the organization. And so I erased my line and it's now organizational justice. And so I've put three things together that I believe are the first steps for me to take to put some of my face-to-face -face work online. And the first one coming up in 2021, I'm going to give a free webinar called the three key pivots to lead beyond bias, because I think we have to just kind of do a couple of little tweaks to the way that we lead. I'm not changing leadership models. I'm changing the perspective you have on the, the business and the behaviors. And so those three pivots would be helpful. And then that leads us into a mastermind that I'm hoping a lot of people will join me for because I've already had a number sign up in a special offer I did earlier. I want to round that up with many people as I can get. I'm going to discount the price because I, I'd rather have more than, you know, make it extremely small uh, to build the six pillars of organizational justice. That's what I was talking about. You have to have that or the rest doesn't work. And then I also have another workshop that I'm throwing into that for the four levels of bias that break down your business. Mm -hmm. And I think we mistake when we go into bias training, we learn about bias. We learn we have it. We learn what it is. We share stories of pain, which I think is human, just beautiful, but we don't embed that into the performance. Mm -hmm. So we don't understand how to embed that, those bias outcomes into performance. And so people are left to fail at work in a way, and then the biases creep back in. And so I want to solve for that as well. So I felt like the three places to go were to show leaders how to lead a little bit differently, to explain the four levels of bias in this workshop that goes with this mastermind to build the six pillars of organizational justice. So any leader who, whether you're responsible for diversity and inclusion or not, any size team, obviously, if you are responsible for DNI, this is a great thing, that we add this to your already existing leadership practices. And so I'll put all the information with you to sign up. I want as many people to take advantage of whatever offer I can give right now, because what a great thing to be able to help more companies in one snap. So that is, could not be more exciting. That's amazing. That's amazing. And now where can everybody find you, Pam? I have a couple of sites, but the one that I think is most important is uh, www.mindsetdiversity.com. Join me because we got a lot to do. People need to feel fairly treated and uh, have equitable chances at work. And I think, I think we just, we deserve that. Every worker is essential right now. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. 
head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode.